Just under a century ago, the First World War was nearing its end. This time, 100 years back, the Second Battle of the Marne was still underway, the last major German offensive on the Western Front. And even as the war was coming to a close, some crucial events would still unfold until the official end date on November 11, 1918. The German naval mutiny, Turkey and Austria making peace, and the abdication of Wilhelm II, the king of Prussia and German ruler. The events of the four-year-long First World War would shape the world for the decades to come. And even until this day, there are remnants of the time that remain scattered across the face of the planet. Weapons. Etched by the nature of production at the time and the trickling effects of the technological revolution, the warfare of World War I was industrial and dirty. Chemical weapons such as tear gas and mustard gas, the rapid advancements made in artillery, the use of tanks, mines, both naval and terrestrial, submarines, all of these were used to a scale unparalleled by any other conflict in human history up until that point. The scope of munitions used in this war set a baseline for the destructive and absolute nature of warfare, where in the Second World War and other conflicts that followed, the dial would again be turned up, updating to the times. But as you look around the globe to any area affected by war, what we know is that any form of munitions or artillery, if they weren't used to serve their purpose, were dumped. Dumped in the middle of the ocean, buried underground, thrust out into unoccupied territory. And what we also know is that when they're dumped, the problem doesn't go away. Many remnants of war today remain active, dangerous, and are potential contaminants. Today, we'll be taking a look at the latter, and how relics from a time of utter conflict can have a lasting negative impact on the environment. This is Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. 
that the remnants of war are scattered far and wide across both the terrestrial and aquatic environment, it's essentially impossible to calculate the amount of what lies where. We know, however, particularly from the first two world wars, that there are a lot of dumped munitions surrounding the states and in various parts of Europe. But with more recent tensions, that's opened up hazardous areas in other parts of the world. If you look around Southeast Asia, around the Ho Chi Minh Trail, all through Europe, uh, more recently, places like Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. This is Stephen Billings, a geophysicist working with GAP EOD. They're a company that is dedicated to the detection of unexploded ordnance. Now, unexploded ordnance, or UXO, is any sort of munitions or arms that's been fired or dropped and has failed to explode. And Stephen says what a lot of people don't realise is that... There's also a tremendous amount of UXO in Australia as well. There was a lot up on the Sunshine Coast, around where Noosa National Park is in the south. There are suburbs out to the southwest where there's a lot of unexploded ordnance that's still there. So there are ongoing residential developments where they have to find these potentially hazardous items before they can start construction work on new housing developments. And underwater dumping grounds as well, particularly in Moreton Bay off the coast of Brisbane, where the Department of Defence revealed in 2015 that more than 8,000 tonnes of chemical weapons, mostly mustard gas, had been dumped in the waters. A lot of the UXO found around Australia, Stephen explains, is mostly due to testing or military training. And when you say training... That's more land-based training. So they might be shooting their guns, uh, they might have aircraft involved. The other area is the underwater realm, and that also is from potentially military training. And whether or not this ordinance was used for military training, in warfare, or was even surplus weaponry when it was no longer needed. They didn't really know what to do with them. So it would get buried, or they'd... Steam out to sea and then dump them over the side. Uh, You know, out of mind, out of sight. They're still active to some degree? That's correct. There is a risk if you put a lot of shock into the ordnance. So if you, you know, on land, if you're digging it up, or on sea, if you're, if you're putting a trencher down to put in a cable and you run over one of these unexploded ordnances, it could explode. And that does happen. And when it comes to the fact that they're unexploded, should they explode? What does, what does an explosion like that look like? I guess it would vary from ordnance to ordnance, but typically how big might these explosions be if, if they're tempered with? Yeah, so when, when you're talking the small ordnance that would, would fit in the palm of your hand, they'll create a fairly small explosion. The larger sort of artillery projectiles, I mean, they'll make a, a pretty big crater that might be three, four metres across. And then if you start talking very large bombs that might be 500 kilos, you know, they could put a crater that's 15, 20 metres across. Explosions to this scale aren't particularly common. But they do occur. I know earlier this year there was some some people killed in Cambodia. A couple of years ago in Germany, there were several construction workers killed when they uncovered a, a bomb that had been dropped by the Americans during the Second World War. 
Also in Europe, the presence of UXO in the Baltic Sea has not only proved dangerous for shipping and anchorage, but in the construction of new renewables infrastructure. So a lot of wind farm projects are going on in the Baltic and North Seas, and those areas were the location of some massive battles during the First and Second World Wars. There was also a lot of ordnance dumped in both the North and Baltic Seas. So whenever they do wind farm projects, a very big challenge is figuring out can we put our wind turbine down in this area without encountering some large UXO? And then between the wind turbines, you need to put cables and you have to survey the cable track. And then often that'll go through known areas of either minefields or dumped munitions. And in that case, there's quite a lot of effort that has to go on to make sure you can safely lay the cable um, without encountering UXO. Stephen with GAP EOD has been part of a project developing a technology sophisticated enough to detect and determine exactly what UXO lies below, something called the UltraTEM. So it's just a big version of the metal detectors you see people down on the beach using. The UltraTEM, Stephen says, can apply to both land and sea, and could prove useful in a place like the Baltic, where the TEM would trawl the sea floor for UXO. The real speciality of the UltraTEM is the people in my team have done a lot of minerals exploration work, so they're expert at finding things very, very deep. So mineral deposits that might be a kilometre and a half under the ground. So we've taken that technology and we've put it into smaller metal detectors and we can see these unexploded ordnances much deeper typically than um, other technologies can see. But there's another problem when it comes to these sorts of munitions that is much harder to trace and ultimately prevent. And that's when UXO begins to decay, which potentially could result in contamination. The energetic materials that are present in the munitions mix, they will actually dissolve away. This is Dr Julie Konzik, Julie has done a lot of work cleaning up sites with UXO, including things like rocket motors, warheads. And her work also involves cleaning up the constituents that remain. And these constituents are what gives the ordnance its firepower, what makes it go boom. You know, things like TNT you often hear of in, in like dynamite. Uh, there's other things called RDX and HMX, ammonium nitrate as well. And Julie says over time, these constituents can start to leak out of what holds them together. The biggest concern is that when these trace constituents start to dissolve, they can seep into soil and make their way into groundwater supply. Well, once they're in groundwater, they're not a safety risk from a detonation or explosive perspective. It's more if people are consuming them and then it's not necessarily a cancer risk as opposed to some other chronic risk. Which could lead to a vast range of health complications, but also problems for surrounding ecosystems. In Italy's Bari Harbour, the site of a World War II air raid, since 1946 there have been over 230 reported cases of sulphur mustard gas exposure. Similar concerns are felt in the Baltic, 
where not only could UXO implicate developing new renewable infrastructure, but it could also be hazardous to surrounding ecology, given following the war more than 65,000 tonnes of chemical weapons were dropped in the Baltic Sea. Detecting UXO is a good starting point, but for some of these sites already affected, the only real solution is remediation. What's step one in trying to remediate a site like this? Step one is generally looking at the history of the site, trying to understand what's been done, how the waste was managed, you know, whether things were buried at some point in time, whether open burning was done on site. And what is that remediation process? Say you have something that's under the ground. Is there an excavation process? What does that look like? I guess it depends on what's under the ground. So if you have buried propellant or buried munitions that are high enough mass that it could explode, then yes, I think your next step is then to excavate those materials from the ground and dispose of them safely. Which geophysicist Stephen Billings says sometimes requires blowing it up anyway. So we'll give a list of locations to what are called explosive ordnance disposal technicians. So they're typically ex-military people and they'll go out and they'll actually dig up the items and they'll make a decision. If it is an unexploded ordnance, it might be safe to move. Uh, if it's not safe to move, they'll put a, some plastic explosive around it and they'll do what's called a blow-in-place operation. So they'll get rid of the threat right there and then. Like a contained explosion? Yes, so they'll put the plastic explosive around the UXO and then they'll put some sandbags over the top to contain the explosion and detonate it. But that's not the end. Then you'll also have some residual contamination left behind in the soils and groundwater. And then that often has to be addressed through, typically through bioremediation or something like that. And what's bioremediation? Bioremediation is where we're using bacteria that are naturally present to actually degrade and clean up these trace-level constituents that are left behind. And so how do you do that? Usually we're injecting like a food, so a carbon-based material, vegetable oil, for example, and then that provides food to the bacteria that stimulates them to grow. And then through that growth process, they start to attack and break down the contamination. Remediation, however, doesn't happen overnight. Depending on the site and how badly it's been damaged or how far the contamination stretches, Julie says it takes time and money, where remediation can potentially go on for months at a time and cost, in the most expensive project Julie's ever been part of, up to figures of $10 million. The contamination effects of ordnance, however, aren't necessarily unprecedented. With the rise of the Industrial Revolution, contamination of both terrestrial and aquatic environments has become, unfortunately, extremely commonplace. And in saying this, when it comes to dismantling UXO and then addressing what to do with these landscapes affected, in 2018, we have other tools in our toolkit that we can apply in the remediation process. Ones which, like bioremediation, are more in tune with the environment, 
and not always destructive like excavation. There are great technologies coming out that are very good at cleaning up contaminants in a safe way, and they can also be cost-effective as well. So something that my lab looks at is a biotechnology called phytoremediation, and phyto just meaning plants. This is Megan Phillips. She runs the Phyto Lab at the University of Technology, Sydney, which is a group that researches the applications of phytoremediation. So we look at different plant species to see how good they are at absorbing contaminants and where they take the contaminants in their tissues. So a lot of plants tend to like putting contaminants in their roots, but there are a couple of big, strong plants that are very good at putting contaminants all through their tissues too. And so depending on the plant and depending on the contaminant, you can find a really good solution to um, basically making your contamination smaller and smaller over time until it doesn't exist. And what contaminants do some plants kind of enjoy to suck up into their roots? I think we've identified over 300 species of phytoremediators and they all do different things. They can work with metals, they can work with organics, they can work with petroleum products, um, radionuclides too. Meaning something that's radioactive. So in the Chernobyl contaminated zone that was the fallout from that reactor explosion in the 80s, they trialled sunflowers, I think somewhere in the last 10 years, and the sunflowers were actually really good at absorbing the really nasty radionuclides, which can be good too because if you think about some contaminants, some have value. So copper is something that we might have around industrial sites too, but copper we use a lot in technology because it's really conductive. That's another part of phytoremediation is agro-mining that's starting to become popular is we get basically fields of plants that might um, extract something really valuable. In the environment, it might be a contaminant, but if we can suck it up with plants and then process the plants and get the metal back, then it's got value. It's sort of like recycling using plants. And what sort of pressure does it put on the plant itself? It's kind of a foreign chemical or contaminant coming into the root system and into the plant itself. Can it handle it? Do, yeah. Do they die? Well, good phytoremediators don't die, so that's why we do research on different species. Some plant species actually exclude contaminants completely. So they've got membranes in their roots that stop certain types of chemicals or certain concentrations of chemicals from entering the plant. And so they can actually tolerate contamination without absorbing it or becoming affected by it. Some species don't have that sort of filter. And so they absorb contaminants, but then they die quickly. And so those are the ones that are vulnerable to contamination. But some species, the phytoremediators, can absorb target contaminants in high quantities for long periods of time, they're the species that we want to use in the field because they're basically tough. Megan also notes that there are plant species that could do the same thing for aquatic environments affected by contamination. So I've recently had a master's student that was investigating aquatic phytoremediation. Um, He was interested in zinc contamination in aquatic areas because you get zinc as well as other metals in water, particularly if you've got any sort of place near an industrial area. The idea behind his work was to kind of build a system where it's water and plants that's kind of acting as a filter because you don't want your plant to escape, basically. And one of the risks you have if you're working in an aquatic system with a plant that's floating is that you could actually have your plant float away. So we were thinking in terms of building sort of systems alongside the river where you could put your contaminated water into it and then it would put clean water out of it. Sort of future thinking. It's not something that's in application at the moment, but a lot of people are thinking down that path. Say you've got, if we're looking at an example, say we have a terrestrial oil spill or if we've had chemical munitions that have leaked into the landscape 
how do we know then how many phytoremediators we might need to remediate that landscape? Site assessments are really informative and they help us judge the best approaches when it comes to remediating a site. And that's not just what contaminants are there, but it's where they are on your site, where they're likely to move to and in what concentrations. And using that data, we can select species to basically suit the site. We're not thinking in terms of monocultures anymore. So when we started phytoremediation in the 90s, we'd have these beautiful homogenous fields full of, say, sunflowers or poplar trees used to be used on military bases, I believe which were sort of like the one working sponge. Now we're thinking about using different species within a site because preliminary research is basically showing that if you use different types of species together, you can actually get an overall more positive net effect. Megan says although there are hundreds of phytoremediators, we actually know very little about Australian native species. So that's where my lab's focusing on, and I like the idea of using Australian native species in Australian regions because they're pre-adapted to our conditions. Um, They're drought tolerant um, and it's also less disruptive to biodiversity too. So these are plants that are already inside the area and so you're not going to be interfering with the species that are already there if you're using something that's locally native and there's less risk of whatever you're using becoming invasive. It's likely in the case of getting rid of UXO. There'll always be some damage done in the cleanup process. There are some pushes to green up ammunitions and make shells that wouldn't degrade in water or the soil. This came up in Canada after fears that shooting ranges were a potential threat in contaminating water supplies. However, if we're looking large scale, Beyond smaller ammunition, it's hard to imagine we could completely green arms and munitions, because ultimately, they're made purely for the sake of destruction. The technology and biotechnologies we now have at hand could ease the remediation process, and the long-term implications for both humans and the ecosystems that these UXO affect. But it's likely many of these century-old munitions will remain exactly as they are. Unexploded and lost below us. As relics of some of the most destructive times in human history. Today you heard music from Urita, George M. Cohen... Philip Smith and Kenneth Bowley, B. Ghibli, and Paul Sandrone. This show is made possible with the support of 2SER, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia via the Community Radio Network. And in the spirit of remediation, here's a song from Annie McDonald at the UTS Phyto Lab. I'm Jake Morecambe, and I'll catch you next time. Technological advancement has generated a hectare of waste. Consequently, there are toxic heavy metals just lying around the place.
solving problems using plants to phytoremediate contaminated lands. Contaminated lands. Phytoplankton. Plants detect issues. They can hyperaccumulate metals into tissues of Australian species. Better at it, making their application easy. Microwave, plasma, atomic emission, spectrometry is a fancy way of precision measurement of metals into plant parts, stem, leaves, root, or aerial. Phytolab.